So this Advent season, we have been exploring who the Christ child is promised to be in the first chapter of each of the Gospels. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read the genealogy, the lineage by which Jesus will be born, and we heard a great sermon by Sarah Johnson reminding us that we are part of God's family. Last week, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, we learned that Jesus will come and find us in the midst of our wilderness and will bring us good news that we belong to Christ, that we are claimed by God and loved no matter what. And this week, we turn to the Gospel of Luke, And before we turn to the scripture passage, I want to give us just an orientation to the Gospel of Luke. Luke um, is written at a pretty high level of Greek. In fact, uh, the Greek that I learned in seminary won't quite get me to the level of the Greek that uh, the author writes in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Most scholars, modern scholars, believe that the writer of Luke's Gospel was a physician. So when you hear the opening two sentences... (coughs) To the Gospel of Luke, imagine uh, your physician standing in front of their friends reading a report on Jesus. It sounds very much like, I heard that this may be true. After running an analysis on my own, I decided to run my own experiments and they were confirmed to be true. You're going to hear that in the first three lines. Listen to it. And then what you're going to hear is the Gospel of Luke gives us a lot of names. The Gospel of Luke is trying to orient us to a particular time, a particular place. For instance, if you went into uh, your grandparents' attic and you found a shoebox full of letters, and you opened that shoebox and you began reading the letters, and you heard and read the following line, you know... Hoover was president, you wouldn't just know who our president was, you would know what particular time in our nation's history this letter was written in. You would know the issues that were facing our country, you would know what was to come, what was on the horizon. Uh, The gospel writer is going to give us some names of those who were in power to orient us not only to who was in power, but to the particular season that this was written in. And as those who stand on this side of history, we know what's coming next. So I invite you to listen for the word of the Lord to all of us this day from the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And I'll be reading selected verses. So if you're following along, don't worry. I'll let you know when we're going to switch. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Doesn't that sound like a a doctor wrote it? And I want to point out something here. He writes to Theophilus. Um, Some scholars believe that that was an elected official so that this letter would get in the hands of power to make sure that this story carried through the generations. There are another set of scholars who believe that we use that name Theophilus because it's literally translated in the Greek, brother in Christ. 
So when we hear it, as modern hearers, it's like the gospel writer said, um, to my friends in Christ, I've done the research. You need to pay attention to this story. And he goes on. In the days of King Herod of Judea, setting who's in power, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Our ears should be tingling. We know this story. It's about Abraham and Sarah, except they have different names now. Once when he was serving as a priest before God and his section was on duty, Zechariah was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified. And fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. All right, now we're going to skip over to verse 26. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's <laughs> name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David friends this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God so the church I served before I came to Preston Hollow Trinity Church in Atlanta, every year during this time, they had what they called the Christmas Market. It was, a, it was an outreach of the mission ministry of the church. We would get together in the gym for three weeks leading up to Christmas, and this was a sizable gym, and we would sell artisans and art, and we would sell um, uh, treasures from the countries that we had relationships with. There would be a table uh, of gifts from Kenya and a table from Cuba. We would have uh, a table for those that we were in ministry with right down the street in Atlanta. The hope was, yeah, to raise some money to invest in our ministry partnerships, but the real goal was to expose the entire congregation to the life and the ministry of Trinity Presbyterian Church. It, this was an important market. It was important for the mission ministry because every year we would raise over $50,000 selling gifts for good that we would then invest those dollars back into the ministries of the church. It was an annual tradition. People looked forward to this Christmas market. 
So a month before the market was uh, set to begin, I received a very formal email from a woman in our congregation uh, requesting an and, and meeting with me because she had a very important idea that she wanted to share with me about the market. I'll never forget sitting at my desk, that email came in, I responded and said, that would be great, I would love to hear your idea. I didn't think more of it. Until the day of our appointment, I was sitting at my desk and Miss Nancy called at the reception desk downstairs and said, uh, your three o'clock appointment is here, Matthew. And I said, thank you, Miss Nancy, I'll be right there. I went over to my coat rack, I got my sports coat, I put it on. It was a very formal email that she had sent me and I put my sports coat on, I walked down the steps and I got to the reception counter and I looked for the woman that I was supposed to have a meeting with. And I said to Miss Nancy, I said, Miss Nancy, I thought you called and said my three o'clock appointment was here. And she said, I did. And I said, I don't see anybody to meet with. And she said, she's sitting right there. And I said, Shelby? She says, yes, Shelby is your three o'clock appointment. I knew Shelby. Shelby was 11 years old. <laughs> so I walked over to her and I said, Shelby, you, you wrote me that really formal email to set up a time with me? She says, yeah, it took me weeks to get on your calendar. And I said, that was supposed to be funny for anybody who's got it. <laughs> I was gonna say something's never changed, but I didn't know, okay. But Shelby said to me, Matthew, I have a really important idea that I wanna run by you. And it, it involves the Christmas market this year. And I said, Shelby, um, first, I'm gonna do what I do with every person that I meet with. Can I offer you a cup of coffee? And Shelby did what Dudley just did and rolled her eyes. And she said, Matthew, this is important. Can we get down to business? And I said, yes, ma'am. And up the stairs we went. We sat at the table in my office. And she said, Matthew, you know how every year at the Christmas market, we sell all of those goods from our mission partners? I said, yes, Shelby. I'm the associate pastor for mission. I'm aware. She said, no, but do you, do you, do you realize that there is a, a, a line on the basketball court? And I said, the half point line? She said, yes, there's a line right there. And did you notice that the whole market happens on one side of the gym floor? I said, now that you mention it, yeah, you're right. She says, I have an idea. Um, I was thinking that we could use the other half of the gym to actually do a mission project during the Christmas market. I said, well, what do you have in mind? She said, Matthew, um, you know how some of our mission partners are in need of goods? I said, yeah, I'm very aware. She said, well, instead of using the money that we raised to buy those goods, what if we asked the congregation if they would donate some of those goods so that our money that we raised could go even further? I said, like, what do you have in mind? She said, well, Matthew, you know how we have that partnership in Cuba with those women who have sewing machines and we gave them a microfinance loan? I said, yeah, Shelby. She said, well, instead of buying sewing machines, what if we asked the congregation if they had old sewing machines lying around their house, if they would be willing to donate them? I said, Shelby, that's a great idea. She said, well, we could also ask them if they're going to donate their sewing machines, if they want to donate all the thread that's right there in their houses collecting dust. You think they could do that? I said, that's a great idea. And she said, then we could ask them to donate all the cloth that is just sitting in their closets. And we could package that up and send it to our Cuban partners. And I said, Shelby, this is a great idea. And I said, but here's the problem. It's three weeks before the market, and I don't have time to organize all of this. And she said, Matthew, I don't think you're clear on why we're here to meet. And I said, apparently not. <laughs> 
She said, I have not come here today to ask you to do this. And I said, well, why are you here? She said, I've come here to ask you if I can do it. I looked at her and I said, Shelby, you're 11. Don't you have to go to school or something? And she said, yeah, I can do this after school. And I said, but Shelby, this could be a really big project. She said, if you will just give me permission, I'll do it all. And I said, fine, do it. The next week I showed up to the church, there were flyers everywhere. It was like wallpaper in every hall. It was asking for things like sewing machines and we were asking for old uh, t-shirts and pants. And before I know it, Shelby has organized and mobilized our entire congregation. The very first week the Christmas market opens, right there on the half court line, there is a market for people buying gifts for good. And then there was Shelby, like a general, just ordering everybody around. She had 75 people volunteered. She had 75 people volunteering. And she was like, that goes in that box and you know what to do with those boxes. And once you've loaded them up, I have a key to the closet and you go put them in there. Shelby was on fire. At the end of the three weeks, we raised over $50,000, and we had hundreds of boxes of items that we had to get to our ministry partners. I know because a month later, I led a, a, a trip to Cuba for Trinity Church. I went with 15 folks from our church, and we loaded up those boxes and carried them with us on the airplane. You can't mail things to Cuba, friends. And we put them on the bus, and we had the great privilege we had the great privilege of delivering those sewing machines to those women in Matanzas, Cuba. And they opened those boxes and they wept because an 11-year-old girl showed up in my office saying, I have an idea. I got to tell you, when Shelby showed up that day, I would have never expected, I would have never expected that Shelby was going to mobilize 75 people in our congregation. I would have never imagined that she would have collected hundreds of items, and I would have never imagined, I would have never expected it, for those items to actually make their way to the people most in need. Funny how our expectations do that. Our expectations have a way of limiting what we think about one another. Our own expectations have a way of limiting... Uh, even what we dream. Our expectations have a way of limiting. Our expectations have a way of limiting. Even what we believe we, individually, are capable of. I want to talk about flipping expectations this morning. I want to talk about and share a story with you about when God flipped all of the expectations. Uh, the ancient Mediterranean, they had a clear idea on who the Messiah was going to be. They knew what to expect. For you see, the people in uh, the ancient Mediterranean, they were looking, they expected the Messiah to look like King David. Let's get clear on who King David was. King David was one of the greatest, he was the greatest leader in all of Israel's history. 
Israel was never more profitable, they never had more power, and they never had more influence than they did when they had King David. So everyone in the ancient Mediterranean was looking for a Messiah who was going to return them to their former glory economically, politically, and religiously, and that person was going to look a lot like King David. They knew what to expect. They expected a leader to come in on a war pony and to lead them back to their former glory. Modern scholars tell us uh, there are about half a million people who lived in Jerusalem at the time of Luke's writing. Half a million people in the time of Luke's writing. 8,000 of them were priests. You couldn't throw a rock in Jerusalem and not hit a priest. <laughs> there, there were so many priests in Jerusalem that there, there was no way that you didn't have a priest in your family tree. But we got to get clear about what kind of priests these priests were. Uh, they were Levites. Levites came about during the reign of King David, and they gave responsibility to priests over duties in the temple. Now imagine 8,000 priests in a city of half a million people. I mean, how many duties are there really to be done at the temple? Is it going to require 8,000 of them? No. So the priest would wait expectantly for their name to be called so that they could serve their duty. That's where we find Zechariah in our passage this morning. Zechariah has finally had his name called. He's an old person by this time. And Zechariah hasn't just had his name called. His name has been on the calendar. He's been looking forward to this date his entire life because his name has finally been called for the Super Bowl for priests. It's during one of the high holy days, during the festival season. And Zechariah has been invited to go into the temple. And once he is in the order of priest, on the Super Bowl for priest, they have to determine who gets to do and perform the most holy and sacred act among them. And that was to go into the room that was right next to the holiest place in all of the temple and to light incense at the altar of the incense. But how do you decide who gets to actually go into that holy place? They pulled out a pair of dye, probably blew on them, and they rolled them right down on the floor. And when those dye came up with Zachariah's number, they all believed that God had ordained Zachariah to go perform this act. Can you imagine if you've been waiting your entire life for this moment? Can you imagine the night before all the thoughts going through your brain? I mean, what if they, what if they call my number? Will I do it right? Don't you know Zechariah put on whatever priest clothes he had and he stood there the night before and he practiced? He wanted to get that just right. So Zechariah goes into this room, which is right next to the holiest room in all of the temple, and he lights this incense. And just as he lights it, they sacrifice two animals outside the temple walls. This is a holy moment. Zechariah is 
spreading that incense all around this altar. When the angel Gabriel appears, I got to tell you, I love God's sense of humor. Don't you? I love that there is a priest who has been waiting their entire life to have this moment, one of the holiest moments of their lives, and so they are in one of the holiest places in all of the earth, and a priest is surprised when the divine finds them there. It would be like if I showed up this Sunday and I thought, oh God, you really are here, who knew? Zachariah gets word. I know that you and Elizabeth are up there in years, but you are going to receive a son. You're going to call him John. Zechariah didn't know what to expect. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do. His whole life has been oriented to look beyond himself, to look out for the Messiah that was to come. The Messiah was out there, and the angel came to him. Oh, everybody in the ancient Middle East, ancient Mediterranean, they knew who this Messiah was going to be. It was going to be David. They were going to keep watch. They expected it. So when uh, the same angel goes and finds uh, a high school girl who's not married and who will be pregnant, it goes against everything the ancient Mediterranean could have expected. This Christ child is not going to come from a, a priest. It's not going to come directly from that lineage. It's going to come to an unwed mother who doesn't even live in Jerusalem but lives out in the boonies. That the Christ child is going to not come from the outside. The Christ child is going to come from the inside. He changes everything that they could have expected. Don't you know that uh, Mary, at some point in her pregnancy, was looking down and Jesus was having hiccups and the belly was doing the thing, and don't you know she thought? That's the Christ. He's inside of me. The Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us, is already in me. Everyone thought that the Messiah was going to be the king, was going to come charging in. But what if the Messiah was the one who was going to come from within? And what if that was a reality, not just for Mary long ago, but what if that is the reality of today? What if that's the invitation of Advent? Advent, the journey within to the Christ that is already in you. Here's the thing, I'm, I'm enough of a Reformed theologian to know what I'm saying. None of us can recognize uh, the presence of Christ in us apart from the grace of God. 
But I do imagine that if we recognize that the Christ child is within us, then it would change everything about the way we live. It would change everything about the way that we see the world. Changed everything for me this past Wednesday because I saw this lived out. This past Wednesday morning, I got invited to a small group here at the church. They've been meeting for 25 years. It's a group of all women. They have a Christmas breakfast, and they invited me to their annual Christmas breakfast. I got there early. I was hanging out in the kitchen. Each person, when they arrived, had some beautiful dish that they had brought for this breakfast potluck. Somebody even made cheese and garlic grits. Somebody even brought uh, candied bacon. They put it right there on the counter, and I was just standing there watching it. And the moment happened that always happens. Uh, somehow at church events, we sort of circle up because we know it's the time to pray. And when a minister's in the room, it happened. They looked at me and they said, well, Matthew, since you're here, will you pray? And I said, yes, I would love to pray. And so they immediately bowed their heads. And I don't know what came over me. But I said, uh, before we pray, their heads are like this, so they shot up. <laughs> I said, uh, can y'all do me a favor? And they didn't know what they were agreeing to at that point, so they looked really nervous, and they were like, yeah, yeah, what is it? And I said, um, it strikes me as we stand in this circle that there have been thousands of moments that have led us to this kitchen this morning. There are a thousand moments that have put us in this circle this morning, and I wonder, would you do me a favor? Would you just... Look at every person in the circle and consider how their presence in your life led you to be here today. Now, I got to tell you, I didn't know what to expect. I did imagine that they would sort of stand there like good Presbyterians and just do exactly what I said and look around the circle like this. <laughs> but they didn't. The most incredible thing happened. They started walking across the circle to one another. And they would say, um, we tried for a really long time to have that child and you were there. You prayed for us when no one else knew that we were struggling. I just wanna say thank you. And they wept and they hugged each other and then they looked at somebody else and they said, you know, when Timmy didn't get into school, I thought we weren't going to make it. And you called me every day and told me it was going to be okay. And then they would embrace. And then they would say, when I lost the job, I didn't think we were ever going to get out of that. And you cheered me on the whole time. And I can't thank you enough they would just keep walking and they would say, the diagnosis happened. It came in, we were numb. I was so sick. You made sure my family was fed for months. They'd walk over and they would say, you know, you've been praying for a partner for my child. The wedding's coming up. Could you have ever imagined that this was actually going to happen? They would look up and say, you know, uh, we didn't know if we'd ever have a grandbaby. But ever since we got word, you've been praying. 
Now I get to hold that grandbaby every week. They went on and on and on and on like this for 10 minutes. They were doing all of this and someone finally noticed that I was standing over here just watching it all like this. And then one of them did a very Presbyterian thing. They apologized for no good reason. <laughs> they said, oh, Matthew, we're so sorry. We didn't mean to go on like that. And I said, are you kidding me? I said, I'm in awe. And they said, I mean, we've been walking alongside of one another for 25 years. I mean, we knew each other before we had kids and before everything else. And I said, I heard. And they said, you just don't know what we have meant to one another. And I saw it. Can you see it? They were the Christ to one another. The Christ child was within them, and by the grace of God, they showed the Christ to one another for 25 years. Friends, that's the good news of the gospel. For we were made, knit together in our mother's womb. We were made in the image of God. And so the Christ dwells within us. If the Christ dwells within you, how would that change the way you live? If you knew that Christ dwelled right within you, was right there, how would that change the way that you saw your neighbor? If the Christ child is right there, and by the grace of God, takes on flesh in the world, how would that change the way you look in the mirror? How would that change what you think of yourself? what you're capable of. Friends, I think that's the greatest news we could ever receive. That we don't wait on the Christ to come into our lives from far away, but Christ is as close to us as our very breath. I mean, who could have ever expected that? I mean, really, who could have ever expected that? Let us pray. You knit us together in our mother's wombs, O oh God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. For you have made us in your image to reflect your light and love to the world. Thank you. May you give us eyes to see it and hearts to feel that truth. For we pray in Christ's holy name.
Amen.